2: Hello and welcome to Gag and Pressing, the Bundesliga podcast from the Football Grad Network. I'm your host Bryce Dunn, and joining me, as always, is Area Manager and Writer for Transfermarkt, Manuel Veith. Manu, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well, Bryce. I had a week off and
1: um, enjoyed my first week being vaccinated, going surfing in Tofino. So I'm well rested, um, ready to talk football, ready to 40 euros and ready for um, more coaching changes in the Bundesliga because, you know, it's been like, what, 10 days since the last one. So it's overdue,
2: overdue. But how are you doing? Not too bad, I must say. Got my first vaccination. So I'm I'm quite happy about that. So all good. And uh, yeah, it's... Um, well, the football season ended rather well for uh, fans of certain clubs, I must say, which we'll get into. So I was quite happy on that note, but uh, it won't be long until we've got more football on our plate. But um, Chris is not joining us today. He'll be back soon enough, I'd imagine. But uh, joining Manu and I is very special guest, Bundesliga journalist Stefan Bienkowski. Stefan, thanks very much for coming on the podcast again. How you been?
0: Yeah, I've been good. Uh, I've also had my first vaccine, but because I had, uh, because I lost a fight with a bread knife the other day, I also had to get a tetanus jab. So, I'm just full of all sorts of jabs at the moment. But besides that, my spirits are high, uh, and I'm in a good mood to talk about the football.
2: Oh well, we hope you're okay. But you know, they always warn that carbs are bad for you, so you know that seems to be the case on this time. Anyway, so um, guys, let's um. Let's get into the football because we've got plenty to talk about today. You'd think you, know, with the season ending, we'd be a bit stuck for topics. That's never the case, is it? So let's start here.
0: German football, that uh, they keep getting themselves in these positions. That could
2: finish it. Scary makes it five. Yes, so FC did it. Uh, It looked pretty shaky after the first leg. They were 1-0 down to Holsten Kiel, but Kuhl managed to come back, didn't they, and win 5-1. Yeah, I didn't know they could score five goals either, but three early goals has seen them stay in the Bundesliga for another season. Manu, it was a bit of a close call, as I said, uh, but they did it. Um, I would say, you know, in a roundabout difficult way and they've got a big summer ahead of them but hey we've got another year of cooling and the Bundesliga. I, you know to be
1: honest with you I, I made the mistake to turn on that particular game five minutes too late and it seemed like the first five minutes was really where it was at um, it was such a quick fire back and forward and then I thought I was really surprised how quickly Kiel kind of collapsed from, from then onwards, right? And especially after the first leg where Köln seemed mentally done. I mean, the, the body language of the players after the first leg was um, horrendous. Um, Hector's interview with television as well where he uh, was very aggressive towards the reporter. Understandable, there's a lot of pressure. But I, I thought Köln were done and to have a reaction like that in the second leg is was impressive, especially because there were fans back in, in the stadium in Kiel, right? And I think in, in some ways, it, it's probably a good thing that Köln stay in the Bundesliga because we are going to get a lot of smaller clubs in the league. We, we, we introduced Bochum and Fürth on the last show a week ago, right? Um, so Kiel, although they're doing a lot of good work, I don't think they're quite ready for Bundesliga football yet. I mean, yes, they eliminated Bayern in the Pokal. But they lost five-1 to Dortmund in, in the semi-final. This result, five1. I think that they are just showing that they're not quite there yet. And I understand that the COVID quarantine, um, you know, them going into quarantine for two weeks, has kind of ruined their season. But I, I don't know about you what you think, Stefan, but I think that result in particular showed that maybe Kiel just need another year or two until they are ready to make that step to the Bundesliga.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, I, I was kind of looking back over the highlights before we started recording today, and I, I didn't realise at the time that just about every single goal in both legs, aside from, I think, one really remarkable volley, um, was just a kind of header <laughs> into the back of the net. And it just made me think that, you know, neither of these clubs are really playing exquisite football, it wasn't a tactical battle, it, both legs just kind of looked like very kind of, bog standards, almost like lower league football, uh, in which case uh, Cologne just seemed to edge it because they had a little more talent, they had a little more physicality. Maybe they had a little more, uh, you know, desire to win the game. Um, and, you know, as you say, I mean, it, I'm always kind of torn when it comes to Cologne because obviously, you know, I don't want to upset Bryce too much, but I do kind of feel like sometimes they get a little too much credit or a little too much love to, uh, because you know there are love. It's a lovely big city. It's a big international city. People who cover the Bundesliga for in in English tend to um, move towards the the Cologne region, and as a result, you kind of you, it's impossible not to kind of fall in love with the city. I mean, I lived outside it for a while myself, and I, and, I, and I did love it. But I think I do wonder if people who maybe are don't have that kind of. Uh, Coverage or they don't follow the Bundesliga that way. I wonder if they feel the same way because even though Cologne do have this really historic background in German football, I think I, I described them to you, Manu, in the text before we recorded. They're, they're kind of like these perennial underachievers, which, to be honest, you could use to describe a number of teams in the Bundesliga, um, you know, Hamburg, Schalke, etc., etc. Um, but Part of me did think, you know, it'd be nice if we could get a club at like Hosting Keel come up, someone different. Um but I suppose we are kinda of getting that in the two teams that are promoted, uh in Bochum and Grotef. But part of me did also think, Oh, you know, I'm I'm never really excited by Clone. I'm never really I never start a new season thinking, Oh, i really interested to see what Clone can do and I'm terrified to think of Bryce is probably gritting his teeth right now as I'm saying this, but that that was kind of the way I kind of took this playoff. I was kind of torn between. I definitely think that it really it would have been interesting to see a team like you know Holst and Kiel get promoted. But at the same time, we've already lost so many kind of sleeping giants in the in German football too. Uh, relegation that maybe is for the best that uh, in the league or for the sake of the league rather that Cologne did stay up.
1: Can we talk about Sleeping Giants for a moment? Because I'm so glad you brought this up, Stefan, because I didn't put it on the document, but I do think we need to talk about it. The uh, German cartel office made a decision this week that in principle, 50 plus one, the rule that governs German football, and if you're not aware what 50 plus one is, 50 plus one essentially just means that 50 plus one share has to be held by the membership club that... um, the base membership club of any football operation that in in the first and second division of German football, and it actually also uh, applies to the third division and some regional divisions as well. And the the cartel office this week decided that fifty plus one in principle is okay. You know they can the DFL can continue to use it. Um, of course, the the cartel office also said that there is. Issues that some clubs are exempt, uh, Hoffenheim, Leverkusen and Wolfsburg, right? And before anyone asks, no, Leipzig is not exempt, they are technically a membership club. Um, but um what I wanted to get at is that Köln are one of those massive membership clubs. You know, we're talking around a hundred thousand members, right? They're big, it's a really big club. And Yes, the results on the field do not reflect that by any means, but they are a team that could probably fill out an 80,000-seat stadium on a regular basis because of the size of the city of Cologne, the importance of the club in the city. But um, there is a trend because look at all the teams that have recently gone down Bremen, Schalke, Hamburg, Kaiserslautern, My club, 1860. they're all big membership clubs I mean they're all big big clubs they're all in the top 10 of the biggest membership associations in German foot in Germany period not even in football and that makes me think it's it's interesting that more and more smaller clubs that are not operated that way seem to make their way into German football which makes you think okay well traditionalists are probably gonna hate me say that but maybe those smaller clubs are better operated because the members don't have as much as we say, and there is little, a lot less politics. And unless you like a Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund that have found a way because of the economic structures that they did put in place around that, we will see continue. We we'll see the continuous dying of those big membership clubs. I think and uh, Kona a great example because they have to turn it around. Um, in a way, they have to find a structure that works, that they can bring that emotionality that comes with being a big membership club onto the field in, in terms of economic success, like Stuttgart have just done. I mean, Stuttgart is a great example, I think, of a club that has done it recently, has really turned things around. But yeah, curious what you think, Stefan, because I think that is actually a trend. You see those big membership clubs dying for, for many reasons. And I think one of them is because that emotionality that comes with those membership clubs.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Uh, just when you were kind of, as you were talking there, uh, I the thing that kind of popped into my head was Schalke. And I was trying to f- kind of put my finger on what happened there. And I mean, I think you could write a huge book on the issues that Schalke have gone through over the last five, 10 years. Um, but the thing that kind of stands out to me is, and, and maybe one of the things that does kind of hold back these huge member-led clubs or Not so much the fact that they're member-led, it's just that they're so well-supported and they have these structures in place, as is common in German football, that they have these very elaborate structures to them that perhaps at a club like Schalke or maybe, you know, a Hamburg rings certainly I think there's parallels there, maybe Cologne, because you have so many different layers to these clubs that so many people are a part of, kind of then leads to this kind of huge bureaucracy at these clubs and then I do think a lot in a lot of these cases, you get a lot of kind of power-hungry um, men. Because I'm going to say they are always men. They're always kind of middle-aged men who who like the idea of being on the board at Schalke or Clone or Hamburg. We've seen this with kind of businessmen in, who in the region. Um, and you know, I, I think if I could use one word to describe Schalke and I think Hamburg, is the same is that they were so bloated with people who don't really know what they're doing. And if that's the case, it doesn't surprise me at all if a team that are really streamlined um, can basically skip through them to an extent. They can they can just go from A to B so much quicker because they don't have to do everything through committee. There's no politics really involved. Yeah, okay, maybe no one else likes them because they don't have these member-run associations. But um, I do wonder, I wonder if there's something in that. I wonder if they kind of... The politics, which is just inevitable, inevitable part of these clubs being so kind of entrenched in the community, means that you the kind of negative side effects of that is that you can get a lot of kind of local businessmen or even politicians who want to be a part of it because they know that it comes with a lot of exposure, um, and that kind of seems to be the I think that was kind of the downfall of Schalke and Hamburg. I don't know if I I don't know if you'd put it specifically on them being members of clubs, but I think you can put a lot of it down to the fact that. Um, they're so well supported um, that people then try to take advantage of that. Because, for example, no 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 politician or businessman to an extent is really going to try and take over Hoffenheim or Leverkusen. Or, I mean, I know it sounds silly to say this, but Leipzig because they're literally run by business. But you know, no no local politician is probably going to try and elbow his way in there, even if he could. Uh if for if for a national or regional uh popularity contest. So that's just some that's maybe just another part of that I, I I think I think you make a really good point.
1: Maybe to add that and then we can quickly move on, Bryce. Sorry about that. But a few years ago, I did an in-depth article uh for an American magazine called Howler, and it was about 1860 and the downfall of 1860 and the, the eventual collapse to the fourth division, right? And um having grown up in Munich and having grown up in a part of Munich that is very blue, um, you know, having gone to school in a part of Munich that is extremely blue and giesing I think that what I thought was really intriguing when I wrote this article, and I remember writing it and doing all the research and in-depth research is, and I always knew this, being a fan and a supporter, but the amount of politicians that were involved in this club, I mean, you had the The uh, longtime mayor of Munich, Christian Ude, was a member of the board. And he was a member of the board because, yes, 1860 are now in the third division. And from an outside view, if you do not grow up in Munich or in Bavaria, you think that's a small club. They're still the second largest club in, in, in Bavaria, right? And they're certainly the largest club in downtown Munich. And so that gives you an enormous amount of political clout. The problem is these people have no idea how to run a football club. And you see it with all the clubs that are run that way, that there's a lot of politicians and, as you say, local businessmen that sort of try to try to benefit from the popularity that comes with with these teams and they promise all sorts of things to the fans. And in the eighteen sixties case, that was, you know, being back in the Bundesliga, being able to compete with Bayern. And, you know, then um investors were brought in that even underline those these promises more and the members went along. They always went along because all they want to see is their club succeed. And I I think that is an an interesting point. And I think all these big clubs suffer from that. Every single one. Um getting the exceptions are Bayern and Dortmund because they just simply do not let certain people into the club and they're very well run, right? A lot of soccer people on there. But yeah I think I think that is a very important point and it's really interesting as fifty plus one is increasingly coming under fire i I know a lot of people celebrated this decision by the cartel office saying like oh it's in principle it's fine it's like no actually they're saying it's not because there's exception rules you know and the dfl will have to react to that and i'm really curious how how that's going to maybe lead to some change and i'm not always sure whether 50 plus one yes it rescued us from the super league but it doesn't always help all of these clubs and that's going to be an interesting one to follow
2: yeah, well, to go back to Kuhn, uh I must say, yeah, uh, Stefan, you're you're probably right in that way that's it's not they're not a side that you particularly look forward to watching, and they, that's been the case for some time now. And I, I think with with them, they haven't been particularly pleasant on the ice since uh, Peter Stüger was there, and they managed to get a run into you know Europe, and even at that, it wasn't exactly the most exciting football was it? It was just uh, I think effective. And I think this this summer coming up, you know, the the changes of coaches um and also a sporting director and there's gonna be players leaving. You know, is being linked away, Uzcan's being linked away, um Skiri probably won't stay there for much longer. You just think you're know, with having to replace all these players and they're, they're some of the better players that have just mentioned they're going to need to be either very smart or extremely lucky, I think, to, to stay up next season. So, that, so changes um, yeah, changes are happening, but also they're, they're much needed, I think. Um, but let, let's uh, move away from that and talk about a change that's happened to a team slightly further up in the table. And that's with uh, Bruce Dortmund. They've managed to find a new goalkeeper, Manu. What, what can you tell us about Gregor Kobel?
1: Yeah, Gregor, Kobel, um, I think we actually reported this exclusively on Transfermarkt. Um, this happened during my holiday, but yeah, that deal, um, it's an interesting one. I think it's very much in reaction to Dortmund not being able to secure some other targets. Uh, Onana comes to mind, right, Who, who's under the doping ban, and he was very much high up on the shopping list. And yeah, uh, Kobel, for 15 million euros significant amount of money for a goalkeeper. It's the second most that was ever paid for for a goalkeeper in, in Bundesliga history. Um, the most expensive one is still Manuel Neuer who went for €30 million Euros from Schalke to um, Bayern Munich. I'm not 100% sure about the signing. I think Koble is a goalkeeper with a ton of upside. I think that he's done very well for VfB Stuttgart. And... Um, What I am worried, though, about is that I don't necessarily know whether he is an upgrade to Roman Bürki. It reminds me sort of when Roman Bürki was signed by Borussia Dortmund from Freiburg in the first place. And you thought, okay, well, there's a goalkeeper. He's very good place. Had some really good numbers for for Freiburg at the time. And um, you're going to think he's going to develop into this really excellent goalkeeper, you know, like this kind of Jan Sommer kind of type goalkeeper. And it just never happened. And with Kobel, you see, you see the foundations are there. He's he's better with his feet than Hits or Berkey. I think he's better aerial too. He has more shots to stop. Obviously, playing for Stuttgart. But is is this the end of the line for his development, or is he actually going to improve significantly to be a huge upgrade on that position, the sort of upgrade that they need? And we're going to talk about goal impact in a little bit, but I had a nice interesting chat with goal in, the guys from Goal Impact and they, they pointed out to me that the easiest place to upgrade a team is the goalkeeping positions because goalkeepers are usually cheapest cheapest players to buy in, in your eleven that you field. And they give you the most amount of impact in terms of points added to your to your team. And that's the question is Kobel going to add those extra 10 points that Borussia Dortmund need? that Bayern Munich get every year from Manuel Neuer? Is Koble going to add that? And I think that's where I'm going to hand it over to Stefan. What do you think, Stefan? Is he going to add those extra 10 points that Borussia Dortmund need to finally dethrone Bayern Munich from the top of the table?
0: That's that's a huge uh, expectation to put on him. Is he as good as Manuel Neuer? That's a question no German goalkeeper ever wants to have placed at their feet. But, you know, I, I actually, I was kind of nodding along with what you were saying there. I don't think Koble is you know i don't think he's a world beater uh i don't think i i don't think he's like a for example a world class goalkeeper uh although of course he's very young and he's he's got he, he could go another 10 years before he hits his prime for example but um i i, I do kind of feel like this was kind of a, necess- a necessity though um you know i think whether he can add an extra 10 points to to Dortmund's season is maybe the wrong question. Maybe the better question is, can he mitigate the 10 points that Berkey probably loses for Dortmund every season? So I don't expect him to really win games the way that Manuel Neuer does for Bayern, but if he could just be a competent goalkeeper, if he could just be a a boring, solid shot stopper, a guy who can hook hook crosses out there, a guy who can, from time to time, not hit cleared uh, clearances or goal kicks straight to an opposing striker. If he can if he can if he can prove to be a goalkeeper it doesn't have a clanger in him every three or four games, then he'll prove to be a better goalkeeper than Robin burkey And that could have a huge difference for for Dortmund because although I think Berkey I to someone about this third day actually I feel like Berkey kinda had the way he was kind of his his form has gone at Dortmund is he was in peaks and troughs and I feel like whenever he after He went through a really tough period. He usually came back and had a really good spell of games. And it proved just about enough for, obviously, the people at Dortmund to say at the end of the season, oh, well, you know, all in all, he probably balanced things out. But I think a team like Dortmund really need to have a goalkeeper they can rely upon. I think it has a huge impact on that defense. Um, And, yeah, I'm not sure if he's going to be a world beater, but I think Dortmund obviously think a lot of him because... Uh, £15 million pounds might not seem like a huge amount of money in the wider world of European football but I think it's quite a lot of money for Dortmund this summer uh, and to obviously get this deal done early shows that they've had this in the pipeline for some time Um, and I think it's obviously a goalkeeper they rate very highly and I think, I think he will be an improvement on Berkey whether he can be their Manuel Neuer uh, I'm not quite sure yet
2: Switching one Bundesliga side to another seems to be something that's not happening with players as much as it's happening with coaches at the moment. Uh, the top eight Bundesliga sides changing their coaches this summer, uh, bar one. That is uh, apart from Union Berlin. So let's talk a little bit about Oliver Glasner leaving Wolfsburg. That's right, that we're in the Champions League for Eintracht Frankfurt. This seems very bizarre, Manu, that you would go from you qualifying for the Champions League, sitting in fourth, uh, to then, you know, leaving that all behind. Okay. Tell us a little bit about maybe his idea of thinking for this and what exactly are Eintracht getting with Oliver Glasner? Is it bizarre, though? I mean, come on, Bryce.
1: Have you followed this league over the last month? <laughs> the, the The coaching changes. Oh, my word.
2: I I I suppose you know it's it's something that you know you would see as a big achievement and maybe you'd want to have a crack at it that that's i suppose what, what
1: I mean yeah you know you're right I mean it's not let's not be funny here for a moment um Glasner had obviously some some internal problems with uh, Jörg Schmacke the director of sport and the, the two have not been on talking terms for most of the season I mean beginning of the year he was almost fired over comments that he wasn't given the strikers that he wanted, right? They, they wanted to sign um, a, a whole bunch of different players that ended up not coming. And um, that was a, a source of disagreement through most of the year. And it's actually kind of remarkable that Wolfsburg did as well as they did under the circumstances. But it was always going to be that Glasner um, and Wolfsburg's relationship were not going to last beyond the season. And I guess with Frankfurt, um Glasner was also um supposed to be interviewed by RB Leipzig, by the way, um before they'd ended up ultimately going with Jesse Marsh. That he ended up taking the Frankfurt position. And I think a lot of us saw that sort of coming that he was going to go to Frankfurt. And I think it's a it's a good good choice by Frankfurt because is another um coach that has a Red Bull Salzburg background plays that very similar style to Adi Hütter and you know prefers the 3-4-3 or 3-5-2 um gets a lot out of his team and um you know got a lot out of a Wolfsburg side that Stefan before the podcast pointed out flying very much under the radar and I think for Frankfurt this is the coach that they need you know he is going to carry on that legacy very well I mean that's that's my opinion anyways but I'm pretty sure you agree Stefan
0: yeah, I think that's kind of the golden question, though, is what kind of Frankfurt team will he have to work with next season? I'm still trying to figure out how they, they failed to finish in the top four. I mean, I know they Frankfurt have this kind of history of, you know, finishing the seasons with uh, a bomb scare or two, but they, they have a fantastic squad there. Uh, they have one of the best strikers in Europe, and Andre Silva, they've got guys like Kostic, they can keep hold of Jovic, players like that. Um, but it just depends... How how many of these guys stay on? Um, you know if if they're all staying there, and you know Glasner can walk into that team and he's got the same squads, um, as there was there last season. Then I I think I totally agree with you. I think tactically, uh, I think stylistically, I think very similar coaches and glasner really can um not only kind of carry on what Hooter was doing, but he can, as he's shown this season, he can maybe go one step further, you know, and get frankfurt into the top four and if we're kind of talking about kind of sleeping giants for a second i always feel like frankfurt i mean i know maybe not historically but or maybe they are, i don't know but i feel like they're mostly one of those teams that really should be pushing for top four in terms of the kind of kind of uh what's the word the kind of stature of the city they're from and how that kind of fits into german culture as a whole i do kind of feel like frankfurt's the kind of place that's just kind of waiting to pop and So it'd be great if Glasgow could kind of establish them as a Champions League team over the next two or three seasons because I think there's a lot of potential there. But I think it really will depend on what happens with these strikers because I think in particular, Andre Silva looks like a kind of, and I, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way at all, but I think he looks like a kind of budget option for a lot of clubs that if we were in normal situations, would have been looking at someone like Erling Haaland this summer.
2: Yeah, this is it. I, I think a great coach, but as you said, Stefan, you know who exactly will he be coaching? Um, Manu, let's talk then. Uh, Wolfsburg—they've turned around and got their man as well in, in Mark van Bommel. Um, what exactly can we expect from him? Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at his stats as a coach here, and I, I don't really know what they've got. That's a very
1: good question. I mean, he's a guy who who left PSV Eindhoven um, in 2019, right? has since been replaced by Roger Schmidt, who had some success in the, in the Netherlands, plays some interesting football. Um, yeah, I, I think we we all kind of struggled a little bit before the show when we went on and, and saw it. I mean, it's been one of those things that have been rumored for a while. And I think also we're not surprised that they did sign him. I think what surprises us is that they ended up going for him based on the reputation he had previously and you are top-four team in German football, and you're signing a guy who has 75 games coached in the Eredivisie. That's it. His previous experience is being an assistant manager with Australia, being the manager of the PSV U19. Um, He was an assistant with Saudi Arabia and an assistant manager of the Netherlands U17. That's it. That's his experience, right? Um, Obviously, a coach that played in the Bundesliga for a long time for Bayern Munich had a lot of success there but yeah it's hard to say really what he's going to to bring to the side and um I do think Wolfsburg are taking a risk here
2: Stefan I, I mean do you agree that this is a bit of a risk uh, is is there anyone that you thought would have been a more obvious candidate I uh,
0: yeah I definitely do think it's a risk I I'm not entirely sure what Van Bommel kind of offers on paper that really enticed Wolfsburg. Um, you know, I think they're actually quite an interesting club for a coach because, you know, they don't have the same pressure, some of the more traditional clubs. Um <laughs> as far as I can tell, most of the media tend to ignore them entirely, which is a kind of double edged sword because it means if you're doing really well, Ally Glasner, then some people maybe don't appreciate that at all. But I felt like that. I think if Wolfsburg are aware of that, they could have really brought in a kind of more experimental coach. Kind of mentioned before the show, maybe someone, if if you really are going to go for someone as as unproven as Van Bommel, then why aren't you really pushing the boat out for an Eden Terzic or something someone along those lines? Because at least with Terzic, he has a kind of degree of goodwill. He's a coach that I think a lot of Wolfsburg players would really get quite excited by playing under because of why he's managed to turn around at Dortmund in such a short period of time um. but I mean I'm I'm sure Man is probably what tells tell here that there was no chance of him ever going there which is fair enough and he's just kind of a stopgap I think there's plenty of kind of younger coaches that they could have maybe uh went after but it maybe it just kind of shows the pool that Wolfsburg don't really have anymore. Once upon a time, they maybe could have went for some really top end head coaches and swayed a few heads in the Bundesliga, but now, I mean, this appointment really makes me think they're maybe scraping the bottom of the barrel there.
2: Yeah, bit of bit of an odd choice. We we all seem to be a, a lot confused by this one, don't we? But it, hey, you never know. It it could all come off you know, fantastically. Let's wait and see. Um, Manu, we we talked about uh, Glasner going to Eintracht Frankfurt and we don't exactly know whether all the players that you know are there in the squad at the moment will be there at the start of the season what about Wolfsburg yeah is, there's been
1: a lot of talk about uh, Lacroix the defender was was done you know completely flown under the, the radar um in many ways i think those again this is this is the fact of playing and living in Wolfsburg i think you kind of get ignored a little bit but Probably been one of the best defenders in in the Bundesliga, and there's been a, a lot of talk about him going to all sorts of teams. Um, Chelsea apparently made a 30 million euro offer, um, just to name one. But um, a lot of talk now that he could be headed to Leipzig, which has sold Konate and Upamecano, and uh, have already brought in replacements for those two guys in Guardiola and Simakan, and. Um, we don't have much time to talk about Leipzig today. We'll probably do at some point in the summer. But Leipzig will have a lot of money to spend and there's going to be some very big transfers happening. I'm thinking about dakar for example, who's likely to go there, right? And uh, Lacroix is, is likely to head there. Jesse Marsh will have a lot of weapons. And um, what makes me think that Leipzig are closing in on this guy is that um, Bornau, Sebastian Bornau, who plays for Köln, is now heavily linked to go to, to Wolfsburg. And that's sort of uh, that's sort of the piece, right? That they were going to sign Bornau from from Köln and then sell Lacroix for you know 30 million plus to whoever is going to win the race for him. And Leipzig certainly have have that money to spend. So, yeah, interesting, interesting development. Um, again, we don't have much time to talk about Leipzig. And I, I'm pretty sure that at some point this summer we will talk a ton about Leipzig because... They're going to be busy and they're going to make those kind of signings um, because I think, as we've said before on this podcast, um, owner Dieter Mateschitz, Dieter is not exactly happy on how the transfers of Nagelsmann, Upamecano and Konate went away from the club and they want to correct that as quickly as possible.
2: Right, well, I think we've covered all the domestic football that we possibly can today. So it's probably time that we move on to the next big footballing a tournament coming our way and that's Euro 2020. So let's get into that. Reasons why the experienced Muller and Hummels have been brought back into the fray. Kimmich couldn't get it under control, but Noah House will tap in the loose ball. It's his second senior international goal on this evening. Of Yes, so Germany had two friendlies uh, before the competition. They were playing uh, tonight, uh, as we're recording this, uh, Denmark. The podcast will probably come out after this and you guys will know the score. Uh, and then they've got coming up Latvia as well before the tournament starts, where they're in a group of France, Portugal and Hungary. Um, Stefan, uh, how positive do you think uh, Germany can be uh, going into this uh, competition? It It hasn't been typical Germany over the last few years, uh, the t- team that we expect to win every game. Um, how do you feel their chances are going into the Euros?
0: You know, if you'd asked me this six months ago, I would have been really pessimistic. Um, you know, obviously Yogi Lov was coming off the of, back of some embarrassing results against Spain. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about Hansi Flick replacing him. Uh, there's a lot of kind of anger at the just general kind of form of the team. And when when you compared them to maybe other nations in Europe, they didn't seem to be the same sort of buzz about certain players. But when you kind of look now, uh, I think things have actually brightened up quite a lot. Not only have you got, uh, you know, two, no, not two, maybe three or four really outstanding Bayern Munich players who've kind of came back to their own this season. Uh, I think Manuel Neuer is playing as well as he maybe ever has in his career. Uh, I think Goretzka and Kimmich, form the foundation of really any Bayern midfield this summer. Um, and then you've also maybe got other ones. As, I'm sorry, of course, the other main one is Thomas Muller as well, who comes back into his team, likely play a really huge role, um, which obviously has been missing ever since he left. Um, on top of that, you've got some Borussia Dortmund players uh, who... Six months ago, looked completely lost, but really, I think, turned around their form. Mats Hummels is the obvious one who returns to this team. I think he had a really, really strong second half of the season. And then add to that, you know, if you can pepper on top of that, two or three Chelsea players who've just won the Champions League and, you know, are playing it standingly well. I think even though Timo Werner still is not really scoring goals for Chelsea, I think the way he's running, the way he's playing, he looks sharp off the ball, if maybe not on it. Uh, but he looks really instrumental for Chelsea. Kai Havertz just won a Champions League at 21. Uh, he's going to be a world star. Uh, and Antonio Rud- Rudiger right now looks like one of the best central defenders in the world. So, you know, there are obviously big question marks over who plays and how low plays his teams and whether they can make the most of that really difficult group. But I actually think a lot of the pieces are actually formed into place quite well for Germany when six months ago things looked a little uh, worrying.
2: Yeah, this is it. It's, it's, uh, I must say, Getting closer to the tournament, uh, I also feel rather optimistic. And you do look, Manu, through that squad that was announced. uh, And on paper, it it looks rather impressive, doesn't it? Um, Manu, you came across um, some stats this week that seems to suggest that we're probably right in in thinking that Germany are going into the competition in good stead.
1: Yeah, as I said, I think on paper, this team is very good. um, And the goal impact numbers underline this goal impact is similar to 538 right they, they take the um, they take data from all the players in the team go back and look at how much how much teams were winning with those players on the field and that's the so-called goal impact um, there's more to it of goal impact has a really good homepage that explains it but essentially it's the accumulation of impact that a player has playing for, for their respective teams and Germany have a lot of highly rated goal impact players, and um, they're actually, according to the start, a favorite to win the tournament. Um, one reason also why they're so ranked so highly above France, for example, is because they, they have three home matches, right? Which is actually a huge, huge benefit, especially now that fans are going to be back. The, um, I think on paper, we can be very optimistic. Um, I've been actually very optimistic on paper for quite some time. And especially now that Thomas Müller is back, who I think is is the, is the best number 10 in the world. Um, I know that not all, everyone classifies him as a number 10, but in my books, he is. He's a playmaker. And he's the best in the world in that position. And we're talking about a team where, you know, six players have won the Champions League last year. Another three have won the Champions League this year two additional players were in the Champions League um, final or semi-final, right? is a lot of talent on on this team and a lot of experience on that team. And um, it kind of reminds me when Bayern dominated Europe in 2012-2013, won the treble the following year, and um, Pep Guardiola went out in the semi-final the Champions League and if he hadn't missed that uh, it was one of many of Guardiola's mistakes in, in uh, his long Champions League career they should have probably defended that title as well and we were in a similar situation this year with Bayern that they dominated European football last year actually really dominated European football this year too I actually do think that if Bayern had knocked out PSG they would have probably defended that title because Lewandowski would have been eventually back right and so you're looking at a team that's, that's very, very good. I think the X factor, and I'm curious what you think about this, is Joachim Löw, Stefan. I mean, Joachim Löw is the X factor. Is he going to do a Pep Guardiola on us? Is he going to overthink this? I mean, I think all of us on this podcast could probably field the best eleven, and would get the three results we need to get out of the group stage and go deep into this tournament. Because we would just basically football manage this and put the eleven best players on the field, but is Joachim Löw going to do that? That's the biggest X factor of it all. Like, is he going to have the guts to bench someone like Tony Kroos, who is not Germany's best central midfielder anymore? That is, I think, the big question.
0: Yeah, I think I think you hit a nail on the head there. I was about to mention Tony Kroos. I think he'll be the main one because. You kind of look at that midfield, and um, you you kind of want to say Goretzka, Kimmich, You have to stay, stick them together after how well they've done at Bayern. And then, unlike Pep Guardiola, you pay you play Gundogan as even perhaps even more forward player. Although having said that, don't know how he then worked alongside Mueller in that kind of number ten role. But I, I, I think I think you're absolutely spot on. To be perfectly honest with you, I think. One to a I think. Bayern, I think Germany. Sometimes it is just Bayern. I think Germany have a team that could really rival anyone. I think maybe in terms of depth, they maybe struggle a little bit, but that will really come down to how Low picks his team, who 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 he swaps if there's injuries. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at the team uh, for obviously the game against Denmark, and you know he's, he's decided to stick Neuhaus in midfield, obviously because it's a friendly match and Ginter Sula on the back line as well um so you know he's obviously even at this stage looking at alternatives and whether he plays a back three whether he plays a back four uh who does he does he kind of swamp the midfield because that's where germany's strengths lie um you know does he if he goes for a 4-3-3 he's really putting a lot of emphasis on players like sani who you know hasn't had a bad season at Bayern but I'm still not entirely sure he's really to properly lead that line um, and this kind of goes back to how important Thomas Müller will be for this team I really think um, if Bayern are, I keep calling it Bayern, if Germany are going to uh, if they're really going to click into gear and score goals uh, especially if Timo Werner's playing up front it really will depend on Thomas Müller um, and as you say it really comes down to how much of how much Lowe is willing to just kind of Swallow his pride uh in, in, in playing it it would seem that's, he has to an extent done that since obviously um Mueller and Hamos were both playing in this match in midweek but um you know it'll come down to whether in the really crunch matches whether Müller plays whether he gets dropped for a front three of Gnabry, Timo Werner and Sani. You know so it, um, it it really it really comes down to I, I totally agree with you. I think sometimes like Pep Guardiola um, Yogi Yogilov can be the kind of he can be his own worst uh, enemy I think that World Cup's winning team um, was a, a a team that largely picked itself because it was a kind of fusion of Dortmund and Bayern players which all kind of clicked in together quite easily Um so, and and ever since then, I think Lowe's kind of been rolling the dice and just kind of hitting the shuffle button a little too often. So it'll be interesting to see how much he can kind of uh, overlook his own tendencies for this competition.
2: Yeah, Manu. I mean, I think we're all uh, agreeing that yeah, the coaching is probably going to be the uh, the biggest issue here because you look at that squad and it's it's fantastic, isn't it? They they they're filled with players that have won things. Uh, there's experience, there's youth, there's speed, there's there's everything in there. But um, it, if if I if we were to be really picky uh, and leave the coaching to one side, is there an area that that Germany are particularly weak? You know, have. Have they brought up too many right-backs like some other nations? Um, I was a couple months ago
1: really worried worried about the centre-back, about centre-backs. And now what Thomas Tuchel has done with Antonio Rüdiger at Chelsea is remarkable. I agree with Stefan. He's been one of the best centre-backs in the world lately. And all of a sudden you have a solution there. And um, Mats Hummels fixes the rest. So that was actually an area that I was really worried. Of course, Hummels, he's not the fastest anymore, and he never really was the fastest player, was he? Um, he was always, always very good at the- his role because his anticipation was is probably the best in the world. Um, so that was maybe an area that I was worried about a little bit. I, I would have maybe liked to see Jerome Boateng. Um, I-, I know that he isn't at his best anymore either, but. I think he could have maybe added a bit more than maybe a Robin Koch. But we'll see. I mean, that, that is an area that I was a bit worried about. I am massively worried about Toni Kroos. I think that the way Spanish football is on the way out. I think that possession-based football of passing the ball to the right and the left and slowing the game down uh, and massively focusing on possession it is a reason why the last three Champions League winning coaches were all German and why Spanish teams with the exceptions of Villarreal, please don't butcher me over that, but the exceptions of Villarreal, there's a reason why Spanish football seems to be on the way out. And, the newest trend is that gegen-pressing, fast-attacking style that Germany, German coaches have cultivated for a long time. And then you will say, okay, Löw is German, but he is very much in that Spanish school of thought, isn't he? And that makes me really worried about Tony Kors. And I think I think we have the right players in midfield, but it really comes down to whether or not he's going to use the right players.
2: Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see, won't we? It's, um, it is... Um a little concerning that the uh, the coaching side of things um, seems to be what everyone's pointing towards going into the tournament but um Yeah, I think um, I think we've covered a lot of ground uh, today on the uh, podcast domestically and going into the Euros. We will try and um, put together a few uh, Euro uh, podcasts, I think reactive ones, maybe, you know, as we go through the tournament. And yeah, I suppose that leaves me to say um, thanks, uh, Stefan, for coming on once again. And we'll certainly get you on before Scotland face uh, Germany in the final. I promise. Um, As yeah, hopefully you get that finger sewn back on too. (laughs)
0: Yeah, like Scotland's hopes in the Euros, uh, my hand is looking a little concerning right now, but hopefully uh, my hand and Scotland will be able to turn it around. And Yeah, I mean, gosh, I don't even know what I'd do if there was a Scotland-Germany match. That would really be a heart versus head moment, but I'd, I'd, I'd thoroughly enjoy it, I'm sure of it.
2: Let, let's just uh, deal with it when, it when it happens, hey? Let, let it happen organically, eh? But uh, thanks very much for coming on. And thank you for listening uh, on behalf of uh, Manu, Stefan, and myself. We'll be back before you know it. And, yeah, we'll certainly do some EuroPods uh, when uh, we can, as often as we can. I've been your host, Bryce Dunn, and to Wiedersehen.
0: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
1: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working...